This morning, we are going to consider Jesus' response to unbelief. And from an analysis of Jesus' response to unbelief, we're going to learn how we are to respond to the unbelief around us as well. Jesus was encountering a people that were failing to believe in him. This despite the testimony, witness, proclamation of John the Baptist. This despite Jesus' own ministry as well, one in which he had done many wonderful, gracious, and powerful miracles. He had healed many, cast out demons, cared for people in every way imaginable, and Jesus had just issued a warning. Tells us in verse 20 that he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. They continued in their unbelief. So how did Jesus respond to the continuing unbelief that he was encountering? And then how should we respond to unbelief as well? The passage opens in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, with these words, at that time. What was that time? What was the context? Why is it drawing our attention to what just occurred? Well, the context is Jesus' statement concerning the unbelief of the cities that he had been encountering. Notice verse 20 through verse 24. Then he began to denounce the the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now we have Jesus' response to their unbelief. In Matthew 11, 25... It says, at that time, Jesus declared. The NIV says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you. NES says, at that time, Jesus answered and said. That is the most literal of those translations. The most literal translation would be, at that time, Jesus answering said. This was the answer. This was his response. I understand why they probably decided to delete the word answered because the question is, what's he answering? There's no question put before him. There is no response to an individual or to the crowd, but rather it is Jesus' response to the situation, to the unbelief. What 
did he have to say in light of the continuing unbelief of these cities in which these mighty miracles had done? We want to look at Jesus' threefold response. The first, Jesus responds to unbelief by offering a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. Oh, excuse me, to the Father. He responds to unbelief by offering a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Now, one might, might think that a bit odd, that the response would be to offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God. So let's look at why that is. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answering said... I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father. It's a prayer. He's addressing the Father, and it's a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you, Father. So what's he going to thank the Father for? Three things. First, he's thankful for the Father's dominion. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. The unbelief that Jesus is encountering was not outside of God's sovereignty or control. God was not being overthrown. His purposes were not being thwarted. His dominion was not being tested. He is still on the throne. He is still God, despite the unbelief of those around about him. Secondly, it's thankfulness for the Father's activity. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, and now these words, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So he thanks God for his activity in two realms. First, that God had hidden these things from those that supposed themselves to be wise and understanding. Used especially of the religious leaders. That is, that man is not going to come to know God by their own intellect or wisdom. And those that refuse the testimony and word of Jesus because they are wise in their own eyes, because they know better, because they understand the Old Testament law better, because they are filled with knowledge and reject the knowledge of Jesus, it says that from them the truth is going to be hidden. If you look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, we have a very instructive portion of Scripture. Then, Matthew 13, 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Matthew 13 is a passage filled with parables, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now notice the next statement. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
Jesus didn't speak in parables because it is the best form of teaching truth. Uh, I've heard people say that parables are a great way to hold people's interest and what a wonderful, marvelous tool they are for teaching. Jesus said that the reason he taught in parables was to hide the truth so that it wouldn't be very apparent, so it wouldn't be quickly understood. In fact, the disciples constantly were taking Jesus aside and said, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, how do we understand this? How do we interpret that? And the reason that he spoke in parables was to hide it from those that were wise. Those that viewed themselves as all intelligent were left on their own. Those that would humble themselves and come to him and ask him, what do these things mean? Well, they would be instructed. They will have been taught. And then it says that God has revealed these things to little children. That uh, these things have been revealed to little children. Verse 25. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. And then we can put the word in there. And that you revealed them to little children. Little children here is not to be understood in a literal sense, but it's to be understood in the way in which little children respond, and that is with meekness and humility. Matthew 18, 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's speaking of humility. On the one hand, there's the proud and the arrogant, and on the other hand, there is the the humble. So God hides his truth from those that are proud, and he reveals his truth to those that are humble. Now let me just say that this is not the ground or foundation of election, but rather it is the fruit of election. And so, he says in verse 26, yes, Father, so the third thing that he's thankful for is God's grace. Verse 26, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Your gracious will. All of this is in keeping with God's will. He's the Lord. He's the heaven and the earth. He's the uh, Lord of heaven and earth. All things are under his dominion. He's at work. But then these things are in keeping with not just his will, but now it's described as a gracious will. For no one is deserving of salvation. No one is deserving of receiving this goodness, and yet they receive it. Application. Not everyone believes the gospel. Some do. Some don't. We ought to express thankfulness to God for those that do. For this is his grace. This is his mercy. 
And if we have responded to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, we of all people must be most thankful. How fortunate we are. How blessed we are. May we never puff out our our chests or gloat in our own faith, in our own wisdom, that we were smart enough to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. But this was God's grace and God's goodness to us. Secondly, Jesus responds to unbelief by making an amazing declaration concerning himself. He says in verse 27, first, all things have been handed over to the Son. And in the context, it's all things in association with the working out of salvation. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So Jesus is saying that he is the Son. And everything has been entrusted to Jesus' care. This revelation of making God known has been entrusted to Jesus Christ. Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says that only the Father knows completely the relationship that he has to the Son. Notice verse 27. And no one knows the Son except the Father. It is impossible for any one of us to really explain the Trinity to understand the relationship of the Godhead. Three persons, yet one God. We try to come up with analogies. We we, we try to come up with metaphors to try to express, but there is nothing in our experience that is truly Trinitarian. There is nothing that we can point to that is like the Trinity. It is a mystery to us. And it certainly is a mystery when we think about the relationship of the Father and the Son. How the Son of God is eternal. The Son took on flesh at the time of the Incarnation. Jesus is not eternal. The Son is eternal. The Son became something he wasn't. He took on an addition. He took upon himself flesh. To try to understand that mystery is virtually impossible for us. The only one that can really understand the Godhead is the Godhead. Only the Son knows the relationship that he has to the Father. Verse 27. And no one knows the Father except the Son, just as no one knows the Son except the Father. No one understands that. And then we have these words. Jesus reveals the Father to those whom he chooses to reveal him. 
and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it is the Son's role to explain to us the Father. No one is going to come to know the Father apart from the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to reveal the Father to us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We don't come into a relationship unto the Father but by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's not through our intellect. No one is going to be able to look at the stars. Nobody's going to be able to look at creation. The scripture says that by looking at creation, the invisible things of him are created of him are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. We can look at this universe and know, number one, it's old, therefore God must be old. We can look at this and say, wow, it's, it's marvelous, therefore God must be marvelous. But you can't look at this universe and, and derive the gospel. You can't know by looking at this universe that there's a trinity. You can't know that there are three persons that comprise one Godhead. Your conscience can't reveal that. Your conscience can tell you that you're a sinner. Your conscience can tell you that you've done wrong. But your conscience can't tell you about a cross. Your conscience can't tell you about a crucifixion, about a death, about a resurrection, about an ascension, and about a coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. It requires that Jesus reveals it. And then we have this amazing statement at the end of verse 27, and that is that the Son has the authority to reveal the Father to anyone that the Son chooses to do so. Now, we have Jesus entering into this mystery of election of our being chosen before the foundation of the world. The Son, the Son of God, was involved in that choosing process. He was involved in that activity. He was involved in making the Father known. So, wouldn't it be wonderful If Jesus chose to reveal himself to you, wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus chose to make himself known to you, to reveal the Father? In this passage, and the reason I was sure to keep it together, because it would easily been able to take this second part Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To spend a week on that. But I didn't want to divide it because the context is integral. Because we have in this passage God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Having just taught on election, what is the third response? Answer, 
Jesus provides a gracious invitation. Verse 28, come unto me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus had just said that he has the power to reveal the Father to anyone that he chooses to do so. And now he says, come unto me. I will reveal the Father to you. With election comes a gracious invitation. Anybody that would ever tell you that if you believe in election, then you can't believe in evangelism. Or if you believe in election, then you can't offer validly an invitation to everyone to come to faith. Just point them to this passage. Jesus has both affirmed election and offered to anyone who wants to come to him that he will give them that rest. Knowing full well that not everyone will come. Not everyone will come. But the offer is present. We offer the gospel to every, every single human being. Knowing that not everyone will come. Knowing that unless the Father does a work in their hearts and minds, they're not going to come. But the invitation is real and it is valid. So, Jesus issues an invitation. It's simple. It says, come to me, the one to whom all things are given, the one to whom he is able to reveal the Father, the one to whom all things for salvation have been entrusted. And this is a general invitation. Verse 28. All who are labor and heavy laden, without exception, without qualification, the offer is a legitimate offer to anyone who labors and who is heavy laden. It's talking primarily about those that are in great spiritual need. In Matthew chapter 23, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The the scribes, the Pharisees, they expound the law. They place the demands of the law upon people. He says they don't practice it, they don't do it, 
They themselves don't meet the commands of the law, but they expound them, they tell them. And they heap great burdens upon them because no one keeps the law. And so this morning, if you're under a heavy burden, if you're under a heavy weight, if you're under guilt for your sin, the answer is not to sweep it under the rug. The answer is not to say, well, that's not your fault, and to practice self-esteem. But the answer is, if you are guilty this morning, if, if you have a sense of sin, if you have a sense of not being accepted by God, then the invitation is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. For, he says, I will give you rest. Unlike the Pharisees, who don't take one finger to lift the burden off their shoulders, Jesus said, in contrast, I will give you rest. I will provide for you forgiveness. I will provide for you acceptance. I will provide for you a conscience that is free from guilt and sin. What are they to do? Notice verse 29. They're to serve Jesus. They're to place themselves under Jesus' authority. He says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Now, what is meant by that? Two things. First, the uh, Old Testament was referred to repeatedly by the rabbis as a yoke. And in Acts 15.10, listen to these words. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciple a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. It was a yoke. A yoke is an instrument that's placed on the shoulders of an ox, or in our day, a, a workhorse. But it would, it would be an apparatus that would allow the oxen or the horse to push against so that a heavy burden could be uh, tied to them. I mean, if you've gone to the, the uh, uh, farm show and, and seen the horse pulling contest, you can see him lean into that, that yoke and, and pull against it. Sometimes the yoke was uh, a double yoke, and you'd put two oxen together, two horses together. Uh, Some have likened this to Jesus uh, being in this yoke with us. But uh, it is a a way of service. For that brings us to the second illustration, and that is that a yoke was put upon a slave and is referred to as slavery twice in the Scripture. Galatians 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own master as worthy of all honor. So when Jesus is saying, Come unto me, it is to come and recognize his authority 
over us. A twofold authority. One, to reveal the Father unto us and provide for us salvation. And the second is to rule over us. For he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is the invitation. To come and be a slave to Jesus Christ. To come and offer yourself to him and to his service. We are to learn from him. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me concerning the Father, concerning salvation, concerning finding rest, and concerning Jesus Christ himself. Why is the motivation to do so? Why would anybody want to become a servant of Jesus Christ? Notice the next words. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is the best slave master that we could ever be under. And the scripture teaches us that none of us are free. That we're all slaves. We either are slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Slaves to the evil one or slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. We either are part of the kingdom of darkness or we're part of the kingdom of light. Jesus invites us to recognize his authority. For it says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I want you to think about that with me. Because I, I, I think it's, it's hard to understand what is meant by Jesus being lowly and meek and humble in heart. We're given a clue in Matthew chapter 21. Um, Turn with me there if you would. Matthew chapter 21. You most likely know this story very well. It's the triumphal entry. It's Jesus entering Jerusalem on Holy Week, the week that he's going to be crucified and slain. And he sends the disciples to get a donkey for him to ride into Jerusalem. And we find in Matthew chapter 21, verse 4, these words. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The foal of a beast of burden. This donkey, and I've preached on this before on, on Good Friday, that the normative way in which a king would ride into a city was on a huge white stallion. 
demonstrating power, demonstrating authority, to be awed, okay? Uh, just like uh, the President of the United States does not come in inauguration in a Ford Fiesta. Comes in a limousine to demonstrate the wealth, the prosperity, the power of the United States. When Jesus Christ returns, he's going to be riding on a white stallion, according to the book of Revelation, because he's going to be coming with power, he's going to be coming in authority. But Jesus rides on a donkey. And this week, as I was reflecting on this passage, and I've preached this passage many, many times on Good Friday, but this week I had a thought that came to me that I I never really thought about before. And that is that I've said he rode on a borrowed donkey at that. Always emphasized the fact that he not, had not accrued for himself wealth. He had not accrued for himself possessions. He didn't even own a donkey. But then I began to think about Jesus' ministry. For three and a half years, in John chapter 7, verse 1, listen to these words. It summarizes Jesus' ministry. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Walking, in that verse, is synonymous with traveling. After these things, Jesus no longer traveled in Galilee, for he was unwilling to travel in Judea. But the reason that it says walking is because that's the mode of transportation that he used. He walked everywhere he went. He never rode. He didn't utilize a donkey. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, listen to the words of Ecclesiastes. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, like an heir which goes forth from the ruler. I have, been, I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves in the land. Solomon says, this is incongruous. I see slaves riding on horses and I see princes walking. You don't do that. You don't live that way. That's not Right. But Jesus, who was meek and gentle, lived his life as a slave. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Jesus uses that passage in Matthew 20 and 25 to teach us this. But Jesus called 
them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. So you are called to be a servant of the servants. You are called to give your life to the one who gives his life for you. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't outsacrifice the sacrifice that Jesus made. You cannot one-up him, nor does he ask you to, nor does he require you to, but he asks you to come and to recognize his authority in your life, to humble yourself and not rely on your own wisdom, not to rely on your own intellect, but come as a child to be instructed and taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, you will find rest for your souls. Not inactivity. Not cessation of labor. Every one of us is busy. Every one of us is engaged in all kinds of work. Let me ask you, is it getting old? Is it getting frustrating? Have you awakened in a midlife crisis and said to yourself, why am I doing all this? Where's it getting me? Have you gotten to the place where you said, you know, I think I've just wasted my life. I spent all this time trying to accumulate stuff, and now I've got it. And what am I going to do with it? I thought my brother. My brother said to me, I I said to him, how are you doing? He said, well, I'm living life in a maintenance mode. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, now i just got to keep up with everything I accumulated. I got to keep it running. I got to keep fixing it. I got to keep redoing it. He's got two homes and he's remodeling both of them. He's in a maintenance mode. Life can be wearisome. We're asked to serve a new master, we're asked to serve a new authority, we're asked to come to Jesus. And in so doing, He says, I will give rest to your souls. My life verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast. Yes, thank you. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Kingdom's work 
It can be hard. At the same time, it's restful. It's peaceful. There's a certain knowledge that whatever sacrifice, whatever the duty, whatever the requirement, it's worthwhile. It's worthwhile. And there is not, there is not the frustration. John and Charles Wesley came to America as preachers. And according to, I believe it's John's diary, uh, he tells us, if I'm wrong, it's Charles' diary, but I think it's John's diary. He tells us specifically why they came. Do you know why they came to America? To save their souls. To save their souls. They thought that by making that sacrifice of leaving England and coming to America, they would have earned their salvation. They were constantly trying to earn their salvation. And it was here in America, while out preaching, that they came across the gospel and came to understand the good news of one who provided the righteousness for them. My, how their attitude towards their work changed. No longer preaching in order to earn their way to heaven, but now proclaiming the good news of how all could could go to heaven who placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And they were at rest. They were at peace. They were comforted. What's our response? First, as we look at unbelief around us, we ought to be thankful. Thankful to God, who's still in control, still exercising dominion, whose will is not being overthrown, uh, thwarted. God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We can rest assured in that. Thankful that God has revealed these things to the humble. Thankful for God opening our eyes, for God's gracious will in saving us. Thankful for the peace that he gives. Don't ever underestimate the blessedness of assurance that your sins are forgiven. I think I'm just going to change our our final hymn, okay? Uh, We're going to sing Blessed Assurance instead, all right? So, Pastor, Blessed Assurance. What a blessing that you can face death and know of a surety that you are going to close your eyes and open them in eternity in the blessing and presence of God. Thankfulness. Secondly, a greater appreciation for Jesus who is the Son of God Hard and difficult to explain, but the one who reveals to us the Father reveals to us salvation and to anyone he chooses to do so. And in that choosing to do so offers a legitimate invitation to anyone who is present to come to him and find rest for your souls. So this morning, it would be inappropriate for me to close without giving an invitation and saying to anyone here this morning, 
If you have never trusted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, to forgive you your sins, and have welcomed him into your life to be your authority, or your, his, uh, to be under his authority, to take him as your master, to take upon him yourselves his yoke, knowing that he is gentle and meek and lowly, knowing that in your service you can never outservice him, in your sacrifice you can never outsacrifice him in his love and care. For you. But if you are heavy laden, if you are restless, if you wonder whether or not your sins are forgiven, and you have any question at all in your mind, if I were to die today, would I enter heaven or hell? There is no reason to leave this morning in doubt you can know assuredly that you are saved. And you say, Pastor, but how can I know if I'm one of the elect? If you come to him, you are elect. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. He won't deny you if you come to him seeking his rest. So I say to you this morning, do you desire to be saved? Do you want your sins to be forgiven? Do you want to know assuredly that if you were to die, you're going to be in God's presence? Then come to him. Receive his forgiveness. Accept his authority. Take his yoke upon you. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Before I go to prayer this morning, I'm just going to ask you, just boldly, if, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you put up your hand so I can see it? I'm going to pray for you. Uh, anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but this morning they want to make that commitment to Jesus Christ, would you just quickly raise your hand, raise it high enough so I can see it, I'll acknowledge it. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or embarrass you in any way, but Anyone at all? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins and peace that we enjoy through him. Thank you, our Father, for all that Jesus Christ has done for us in saving us. Thank you for the privilege of taking upon ourselves his yoke, knowing that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Thank you for all the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, that he came not to be served, but to serve. Oh, Lord, may we have the same attitude. May we come not to be served, but to serve, knowing all the time that Christ serves us in ways that are incomprehensible. We never can outgive him. Thank you for the peace, the joy, the confidence we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.